Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom Podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thank you for sharing this out and writing reviews and helping us share out the good news of mission-driven mothering, the joy that it brings us personally and how it blesses our families and communities. Today I get to talk to you about Eric Little. Some of you may be familiar with the movie The Chariots of Fire. It was a popular one when I was a little kid. It was one of my dad's favorite movies. And so I've known about Eric Little since I was young and I hadn't done a lot of research on him, although I'd always really admired him. And of course, as so often happens when we learn about great people, the more I learned about him, the more uh, I really loved and admired him even more. So I'm super excited to kind of tell you his story today. It all started with his dad who, when he was a young man, felt called to be a missionary. And he felt that the right place for him was in China. This meant that he had to study and study and study. He had uh, met a wonderful girl who was in love with him and they wanted to marry, but he had to continue his studies and she had to wait. I think she waited two or three years for him because then he had to spend a year in China to make sure that it was going to be a good fit and he was going to be able to stay there. Anyway, not sure why all the delays, but eventually they were married. They went over to China. This is right at the turn of the century. And so if you know very much Chinese history, you know that this is a very, very turbulent time. They're um, not sure what kind of government they are going to have. They've had emperors forever and different groups are vying for power. Eventually the communists take over. And so there was internal fighting. The Japanese came over. There was all kinds of, all kinds of unrest in China, all the years that the little family was there. And so from the time his dad got there, much of this unrest really began. And he at first had to live away from his wife, but eventually they were sent to and I can't remember if it's Mongolia, but somewhere kind of in the outskirts into this small village, but it ended up being this kind of haven for their family. Of course, everyone was very, very poor and they were very poor, but the people wanted them there and they wanted to learn about um, Christ and about God. And they could tell that the little family loved them and wanted to take care of them, do what they could for them. And so it ended up being a good fit. So they lived there for several years. And while she was in China, Mary had her first three children, Robbie, Eric, and Jenny. It was until Eric was about five or six that they lived in this little village. Now, their dad would travel around to other places, but they predominantly lived there. And so he really only ever knew China as a little boy. And of course, he was fluent in their native dialect and loved it there. And then it was time for a leave. And this is kind of how, I don't know if it still works this way today, but this is kind of how it was done back then. You would work for a while wherever you were, and then you would be on leave. And it had been so long since he'd been on leave that he was given, I think, a year or two off. 
And so they went back to Scotland or where they were from and he got to meet his extended family for the first time and, and he learned to love it there and he started to learn English. Um, I don't know if they'd spoken it in their home and he was bilingual or how they'd kind of done that. But anyway, when the leave was over and it was time to go back to China, Mary and James decided they needed to leave Robbie and Eric behind in a boarding school. And this was very, very common back then. It was very common for the missionaries' children to be left when they were young. And in fact, the school that they attended was a school for the sons of missionaries. Like that was the name of the school. And so they could expect to have a good environment for their boys, but it meant being separated from them by the time they were seven and nine the both parents were gone. Mary stayed behind a little bit longer to get them kind of acclimated in. Now, another thing about Eric when he was really little is he was really sickly. He was sick quite often. In fact, one time he became so sick, they thought they were going to lose him. And as he was getting better, one woman said, you know, he'll never, he'll never, he'll never walk again. And of course, that wasn't true at all because he became a great runner. So the mom stayed behind with them for a few months and then left and they were separated for five years. In the meantime, this particular school emphasized athletics and they had a lot of different sports. They had a lot of grounds around the school building and the boys were encouraged to participate in lots of different sports. And actually both Eric and Robbie were very good at pretty much any sport they got involved in. In fact, by the time they were in high school, they were setting school records, and in almost every sport, there was a little chart in a book that I read um, that showed these different athletics, and either Robbie or Eric took place in everyone. <laughs> and they were that was that was specifically, I think, track and field. But Eric was also very good at rugby, which I'll talk about in just a minute. So they he did well in school. He did well in his studies but he especially did well on the playing field. And he loved it, he really took to it, and his health came back and he was really robust and healthy from then on. In the meantime, he kind of learns to get along with the other students. He's kind of mischievous. He um, gets involved in pranks quite a bit and (laughs) gets into some trouble for that, but he's very good hearted. He's very, very shy. And Robbie was always his best friend. He would kind of have other friends, but pretty much he would only hang out with Robbie most of the time and be got very close to Robbie. And they had each other. And for a long time, that's kind of all they had was each other in terms of family, being separated from their family in Scotland and from their you know extended family and, and their parents in China. So as Eric grew, his understanding of God grew. At this particular school they offered Bible class. And I would assume they had some kind of morning devotional for everyone, but these particular Bible classes weren't required like for graduation or whatever. They were voluntary, but Eric never missed one. He would never comment. He was still very shy and he wouldn't say much, but he would go to class and he would listen uh, consistently and was known to study his Bible regularly and pray but he kept his opinions to himself and he would just kind of ponder what he was learning. About this time, he decided that his life's ambition was to be a missionary in China like his father. So he starts getting more serious about his his studies and about his future plans. And his three great loves were running, science, 
and God. And so that's kind of what he spent his time doing through high school was being in sporting events and um, learning more about God in these Bible classes and then preparing himself to go to college so that he could be a missionary in China. Well, he got better and better at his studies. He got accepted into the college that he wanted to go to. And when he got there, he just kind of stopped doing athletics. I mean, he, he had gone to this high school and there were a good number of students, but not anything like college. I think he was at Edinburgh, I'm not positive. And there was going to be a race run. And this friend of his, he had this particular friend who told him he should run in this race and knew kind of about his past and his athletic prowess. And Eric was like, no, I've kind of moved past that. I mean, I was good in high school, but I could never compete with these college kids. And I've got these studies to do and this missionary work to prepare for, so I'm not going to do that. And this guy just nagged him and nagged him and nagged him and and was like, look, I know enough to train you. I could train you in this and, and you could run in this race and let's just see how you do. Let's just see what happens. So he gives in. He decides to run in this race that's a few weeks away. And he does really well. He had gone on this biking trip that had tightened up his muscles that put him a little bit behind, but he took second place overall in this track meet, which qualified him for another track meet. And by the time he got to that second track meet, he had taken first in, in every race. He took first there and he took first in every race he ran thereafter. And every time he ran, he kept qualifying for the next race and qualifying for the next race. Pretty amazing. In the meantime, he's this incredible rugby player. And he keeps moving up to these harder teams. Or he's with his college team and they do well. I couldn't figure out all the details. But the bottom line was that the team that he was on went to an international competition. And they won first for the first time in 33 years. Now, there were other good players on the team, obviously, but because he was so quick, he made a huge difference. And in the meantime, as he's running these races, this trainer named Tom catches his races and is really impressed with Eric and wants to train him. But Eric doesn't have the funds to hire Tom, so Tom just says he'll do it for free. And he's also a masseur, and so he's giving Eric these massages all the time that were extremely painful, I guess, because he'd never really had any professional training. He'd never really took care of his muscles properly. And so as he worked out his muscles, it was very painful, but him made him more and more flexible and faster and faster. And so then he started setting records like crazy. In the meantime, he had a friend who was part of a group that wanted to spread the Christian message to youth. And, and he was a youth. They were both young men in, you know, in, their, in college. And they had been going around to these different areas and trying to gather youth groups. And they were having some success. But at one point, it dawned on this friend, David, that Eric was now kind of a national hero in Scotland because he'd won races all over Scotland and he'd won national races. And so people knew who he was and David wasn't exactly sure because up to this point Eric had never really talked much about what his beliefs were and so David wasn't really sure where Eric stood I mean he knew that he was a good Christian and a good example but he thought man if I could just get Eric there people would come just to see him 
So he followed his intuition and he went to see Eric and he explained what they were trying to do. And Eric's inclination was to say no, because he was really shy and he wanted to go out and speak in front of people. But Eric always had a reputation for doing what he knew was right. And sometimes that was inconvenient for him and inconvenient for the people around him. But he was a man of such strong inner integrity that he just always kept his word and he would evaluate opportunities and circumstances for whether or not he felt they were the right thing for him to do. And if he knew they were the right thing to do, he would do them, even if it made him uncomfortable or inconvenienced or worried or fearful or whatever. So he says he'll go and it's a huge success. People start coming to these meetings because he's there. And the first one that he spoke at was in a, I think in a, in a church of some kind. And there was a quite a good showing. The room was full and he just, he wasn't sure what to say. So he just kind of shared his simple faith. And he just explained how he got up early every morning and spent time with God and read his scriptures and pondered them and prayed and worked on his relationship with God and how that was the foundation for who he was. And it was a recommendation he had for everyone that he spoke to. And he had such a quiet, disarming, peaceful way of being and talking. He didn't yell and shout and get excited like a lot of pastors. He just spoke from his heart. It really caught people off guard and it was actually really endearing. And so people really took to him and learned to trust him and love him and listen to him when he spoke. So for two years, during these first couple years of college, he kind of set into a pattern. And pretty much he spent all his time running or preaching or studying. And he was very serious about his studies. He didn't let himself fall behind. He did well in college. Sometimes he took first in his class. Another thing that was very impressive to people about Eric Little was not just his incredible running winning streak and his preaching, but also his sportsmanship. In the movie Chariots of Fire, there's, I think it's at the Olympics, or maybe it's at a race before the Olympics, and you there's this scene where Eric Little is getting ready for the race. They're all getting ready for the race. And back then they didn't have starting blocks. And so they would just dig out a little portion of the earth. And so everyone's kind of on the ground or jumping around, warming up and doing that. And he goes down the line of all his competitors. He shakes each of their hands. He looks them in the eye and he wishes them best. He hopes for them that they'll do their best. And he meant it. And they knew that he meant it and that he was very sincere about it. And it was really disarming to the other to, to the other runners and took them off guard, but really showed how much he cared about people. And he, he did like to win and he did love to run, but people always came first for him. That was another way that people could tell what an incre- incredible man that he was. One thing that's funny that happened during this time period is He won all these races, you know, and he's traveling all over Great Britain (laughs) winning races. And he would win all kinds of things. He would win sometimes like a gold medal, silver. He would win trophies that were worth money. He would win um, knife sets, kitchenware, all kinds of things. 
And they each had inherent value, often in the metals that they were um, cast in. And so he would bring these home. And for a time, his family was back home and they were living together during some of this racing period. And his mother and his sister didn't know what to do with all of these awards. They were really super worried about the house getting broken into. And so they would hide them under the bed, under the beds and, and in different places every single night. And then they would get them back out pretty regularly because people wanted to see all of his medals and awards. It was kind of an ongoing thing. Later when he married, his wife was really proud of his awards. And so they had cases made and, and they got sick of putting them away and pulling them back out because people were always asking to see them. Obviously, he's the best runner in Great Britain. And so he's chosen for the Olympics and he's scheduled to run, I think three different races, a 100, a 400 or 440 or something like that. And another one. And the 100 is his best race. A few months, I don't know, maybe a couple months before the Olympics, the schedule comes out. And of course you have to run in the preliminary heat in order to qualify for the finals. And the first heat of the 100 is on Sunday. And People were crowded around, all kind of looking at the schedule together. And they were really taken back because the very first words out of his mouth when he saw that schedule was, then I won't run. People were like, oh, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. Or you can make an exception this time and run on Sunday. And for him, Sunday is the Sabbath and it's sacred and he would not run on Sunday. That first 100 heat was on Sunday and he wouldn't do it. And so, of course, the British authorities wanted the French to make an exception and the French would not. And it was never able to be worked out. And so he really did miss that event. In the 400, he was really good and he often won, but they weren't sure how he would do. But of course, he was in that race and in fact, the heat before the finals, he took second or third, I think, and he wasn't slated to win. He wasn't expected to win. But in the end, he just ran his heart out and not only won, but set a record. So I would recommend that you get the movie and you watch the movie for that part of his life. It ends with the Olympics. It doesn't show his time in China, which I'll talk to you about for the next few minutes. But it does a great job of portraying the lead up to and the Olympic experience. As far as I can tell, in the movie, it shows someone offering their spot in another race so that he can run. But as far as I can tell, that wasn't the case. He already was slated to run a second race. And so he just went ahead and ran the race he was scheduled to run. And there wasn't someone that stepped forward. But pretty much everything else is pretty true to the story in terms of his experience. So he wins this gold medal at the Olympics and everyone is absolutely thrilled and he comes home a hero. The British hadn't won, you know, a gold in that race in a long time or ever or whatever the case was. And the Olympics weren't very old at this point. You know, it had only been going since the end of the 1800s. So he comes home and people have him scheduled to speak everywhere, preach everywhere, be at a jillion award ceremonies and... He's just busy, busy, busy going around and he hearing all the applause and preaching 
about God and about his experience. And he was even more of a hero with even more respect because he'd chosen not to run on Sunday and he'd still taken a gold. So a few days after the Olympics, he graduated from college. And it was a really sweet experience. They had him come up. They did talked about him specifically. They gave him an Olympic wreath of leaves, which of course is back to ancient Greece. That's what they always gave. And they spoke and said wonderful things about him. In the meantime, he had applied to teach at a college in Chenson, which is actually where he was born and where he would return. And was a, that city was a big part of his life, actually. He asked for a deferment for a year. He was accepted to the post, which he was thrilled about. But he wanted, defer, he wanted to defer for a year because he wanted to go on more spiritual campaigns in Britain and visit Germany where he would um, also preach about God among the British Army of Occupation on the Rhine. And he applied for a place in the Congregational College in Edinburgh to study theology. So he was going to take this year and do a bunch of traveling and preaching and then study theology to pre- better prepare himself to be an even better missionary. All, you know, to glorify God and serve mankind in many places. It's just incredible how even though he was this incredible international figure and so famous, he really could have made it about him and he really could have just relished in his awards and in his fame, but he was just too humble to do that. He just gave the glory to God and tried to figure out what else he could do to be of service to mankind and how else he could serve God. And it's just, it's really, really amazing. I wanted to read you this little paragraph uh, from the book because it really gives you some insight into what this time period was like. Eric Little's name attracted admiring crowds wherever he went. At times, so many gathered, they would be turned away. At religious meetings, buildings would be crammed with people crushed shoulder to shoulder. The numbers of people who turned to God during those crusades of 1924 to 25 were beyond all expectations. The the evangelists spoke in theaters, churches, public houses, schools, dance halls, social clubs, anywhere an audience would gather. And they would come because he was Eric Little and they wanted to see and hear from him. And then he would talk to them about God and it would change their hearts. So that was really incredible. So then he's off to China and he goes to this school to become a teacher. And they have kind of a different model at this school where you have a certain number of students and you stay with those students all through your your time at, at teaching at that school, which is really cool. I really like that. They really learned to love him. And eventually many of his students were converted to Christianity. And you would think that the Chinese would maybe be... Um, averse to that, you know, that maybe the parents would put up a little bit of a fuss, but, but not at all. They could see that Christianity was having a positive impact on their sons. They had better attitudes. They were more upbeat and happy. They were harder workers in school and such. And so they, for the most part, really welcomed it and encouraged their sons to be baptized and converted. He continued to run in China, actually, and was very good and and won races and things. And the next Olympics in uh, 28 approached, but the British did not know he was running and they didn't know what kind of times he was running. And so he wasn't 
asked to be on the Olympic team again. But what's ironic is that the people who went that to that Olympics to represent Great Britain had slower times than Eric did. And so he could have gone to another Olympics and I'm sure he could have won more medals. In the meantime, he met and became close to a missionary family there who had two daughters. And as they grew older, eventually the one daughter really fell in love with Eric. Took him kind of a long time to realize it. And by this time, he's in his late 20s. And they were, I think, almost 10 years apart, uh, Florence and Eric. But eventually they fell in love and spent the first year of their courts. You know, they got engaged, but they had to spend a year apart. She was going to nursing school and he was serving in China. So unfortunately, they spent a year apart again. It really is even more tragic because in the end, they ended up spending so little of their married life together, but they loved each other and she admired him and wanted him to do the work he felt called to do. So they were able to marry. They had this beautiful wedding, actually in China, I think. They had their first daughter, I think within the first year of marriage. Not long thereafter, he was called to a different area that wasn't safe for his family. And this kind of started a pattern of them being separated. There were times when he was able to live with his family, but it was really on again, off again. And he would come home and be with them for a little while, and then he'd have to go back. He was at the school for several years, but then the missionary society preferred for him to go further north into these more dangerous areas. And so his family just couldn't be with him. And in fact, he would bike to all these different villages to try to be of service to whoever he could. And he was getting searched all the time. It was unsafe for him as well. And eventually he had to leave there. He came back to his family. I think they stayed in tents and pretty much all that time. Uh, I can't remember exactly. So he goes back and he's with his wife again. And it's even more unsafe. World War II has hit. They've been married, I don't know, maybe 10-ish years at this point, And it's just not safe for them there anymore. And so eventually he has to send his wife and children out of the country. And he's asked to stay to continue to help. And so he does that. And early on, he and some of the other missionaries are promised that they will go home soon. And so they trust that. I mean, that's always been the case, even though China's been dangerous, you know, and his families had always been able to get in and out. So he had every reason to trust that. But another year went by and it got more and more dangerous in China. And it just became more and more clear that they probably weren't going to go home. Eventually, he was sent to an internment camp, which means it wasn't like a concentration camp. They were people that, like these missionaries and other, you know, dignitaries or, or wealthy people from other countries, and they, they, they didn't, they weren't willing to send them home, but they weren't going to like abuse them and kill them, but they were going to cart them off to these internment camps and keep them contained. And so it, they weren't abused in things, but it also was very primitive living conditions. They often didn't have enough food and things like that. And they just didn't have hardly anything. They were just very, very poor kind of living in these barracks. But they kind of let them do inside the camp. They kind of could do what they wanted. And so they got organized. And Eric was just this servant of all. 
he took on everything. He was teaching pretty much full-time a lot of the children that were there. He was running pretty much all the sports. He was still doing some running himself with them to just have fun and teaching them different sports. He also um, was doing, he would do cleaning chores. He would, he did a lot of preaching and everybody just knew what kind of man he was, what kind of character he had. He was very beloved. And I think he was there for close to three years. I want to mention something really quickly, though, that I forgot. Before he was put into the internment camp, uh, a couple years before then, he was given the opportunity. Well, I can't remember how the circumstances came about, but he had this idea for a stadium in China where the Chinese people could engage in more sporting events. And he was able to get that approved and get that built. And so he was responsible for the first real sporting arena in China, which I think is also really cool. And so that helped him have this ongoing connection with youth and they loved him and he loved them. Well, tragically, in that last year of the war, Eric started getting these terrible headaches and they got worse and worse and they made him ill and they came more and more often and they were just completely debilitating. He was able to get kind of some medical attention and at first they didn't really know what it was. Eventually they were able to figure out that it was a brain tumor. Now, I don't know if had he been in other circumstances and had proper medical attention, if it like could have been removed and saved his life, but in the circumstances that he was in, there was nothing anybody could do. For a long time, it was believed that he died of this brain tumor in the internment camp. And he did, but in recent years, information has been made available, I think by the Chinese government, of a little known fact at the time. And that is that of course, he was a famous Olympic runner and the British were very proud of him. And when they got word that he was in this internment camp, Winston Churchill, worked really hard with the Chinese government and was eventually able to negotiate an exchange of prisoners, I think is how it was going to work. And so Eric knew that he could have his freedom. And I don't know if anybody is quite sure on the time frame, if he knew he had a brain tumor, if uh, he was already having these headaches and, and in a lot of pain or not. But probably the most courageous moment of his life came at the very end. He had already given everything he knew how to give to God, really, which is why he turned down a gold medal on the 100 meter race because he was trying to honor God. And when this opportunity to leave the internment camp came, even though he missed his family desperately, and even though he wanted to see his girls, he hadn't, I think, even met his youngest daughter. There was a pregnant woman in the camp and he felt it was right to give her his spot. And so he literally gave his life for this woman that was almost a virtual stranger to him, allowing her to leave the camp and have her baby elsewhere and to grow and raise her baby absolutely incredible how he gave his life while he was living and then he gave his life at the end 
He had a dear friend who helped take care of him in those last few months. And he fell into a coma eventually and passed away in the camp just five months before the end of World War II. So that's the life of Eric Little, but I want to finish up with something really uh, wonderful from him. And I will put the link to this on the podcast page for all those who are interested. I'm going to actually order my own hard copy because I did not know that he was also an author. He wrote two books during his life. One for, I think they were both for teachers, Christian teachers. I think the first one was in English, but and, and it's hard to tell. There's very little information out there about specifics. It's This one is called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. I'm pretty sure it was first written in Chinese or at least to the Chinese teachers on a, the Christian life. But it's it starts out with some like really incredible insights. And I'm going to share out some of the things that he teaches in this book in the rest of these Law One podcasts on scriptures and and um, submission, because he says some beautiful things about that. But I, I wanted to just read a few selections from you so you could kind of get a sense of what this book is like. It's, it's meant to be Um, helpful to people who want to live a more Christian life, but it also has these like daily devotionals where he's chosen favorite scriptures for you to read through and then ponder. So it's pretty cool. So there's a preface in the book and this is how it starts out. In this book, I am attempting to do three things. To place before people the limited amount of Christian knowledge that every Christian should have. To help people apply their knowledge to daily life to live according to the light they have. And three, to develop the devotional life so as to create basic Christian thinking on subjects of conduct, conduct, action, outlook, and attitudes. The Christian life should be a life of growth. I believe the secret of growth is to develop the devotional life. This includes setting aside each day a time for prayer and Bible study. The time need not be long, but it should be unhurried. We should do it in an honest spirit, prepared to face the challenges of God's word as it lays down a way of life and prepared to face any inconsistencies in our lives, which make them unchristlike. After reading the scripture passages, ponder over them, taking special note of their application to a present day circumstance and the problems associated with your daily life as a Christian. And that's exactly what he'd been preaching for years and years and years to these audiences everywhere, that that's how he had become the man of integrity that he was. That's how he'd had great spiritual power and influence. And he really believed that um, God was very involved in his running. The, the, The movie Chariots of Fire does a good job of showing kind of the conflict that he may have felt between the, the, quote, missionary Christian life and the, quote, secular running life. And he saw no conflict there. He There's one beautiful moment where he says to his sister, I know God made me to be a missionary, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In fact, he ran. You can see little videos of him on YouTube, which we'll also link. We'll put those in the Facebook group. He ran kind of crazy. He ran with his head way back and his hands fisted and And although he got better and faster through his training, he never had good form and he should not have been able to win, but he did. And there's also a moment in the movie where he falls and then he 
races and cat not only catches up but wins that's also a true story here's a couple more quotes to end with from this book he says that there are two characteristics of a true disciple righteousness and love are the two central pillars he says i absolutely loved that he also says and we'll put this in the podcast notes for you as well and up on the on the in the facebook group he says Here are four tests of the moral law by which to measure ourselves and so obey the biblical commands. The first one, am I truthful? Are there any conditions under which I will or do tell a lie? Can I be depended on to tell the truth no matter what the cost, yes or no? Don't hedge, excuse, explain. Yes or no. (laughs) So he's really trying to get you to be really honest with yourself. Two, am I honest? Now that seems like it's the same as being truthful, but to him, they're two different things because are we committed to the truth and do we are, are we honest in our dealings? So his questions here are, can I be absolutely trusted in money matters? In my work, even when no one is looking, with other people's reputations, yes or no, with myself, or do I rationalize and become self-defensive? Number three, am I pure in my habits, in my thought life, in my motives, in my relations with the opposite sex, yes or no? And four, am I selfish? In the demands I make on my family, wife, husband, or associates, am I badly balanced, full of moods, cold today, and warm tomorrow? And he finishes off with these kind of self-evaluating questions. What am I living for? Self, money, place, power? Or are my powers at the disposal of human need, dedicated to the kingdom of God on earth? Let us put ourselves before ourselves and look at ourselves. The bravest moment of a man's life is the moment when he looks at himself objectively without wincing, without complaining. Self-examination, which does not result in action, is dangerous. What am I going to do about what I see? The action called for is surrender of ourselves to God. Absolutely beautiful thoughts from Eric Little. We'll loop back and review a little bit of that in the next couple months when we continue our series on the seven laws and talk about scriptures and submission. But for now, wonderful things to ponder. A very inspiring life. Many people said about Eric Little that he was the man that was closest to God of anyone that they'd ever met. That they felt unconditional acceptance and love from him. He was a man who was true to himself and true to the light that he was given. And as he was true to it, he was given greater light. And that's the journey we want to all be on. So I'd encourage you to learn more about him, watch the movie, look at some of the videos on YouTube, and perhaps even grab one of the books and read it to your family. So a little bit of Eric Little can rub off on all of us. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't have your free copy of my audiobook, The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab that so you can learn these seven laws of life mission and get on the mission path yourself. We'll see you next time.